You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC.
So I want to argue this morning that the scariest place on planet Earth is not a haunted house. It's not an abandoned factory building. It's not a cemetery in the dead of night. I want to argue this morning that the scariest place on planet Earth is the middle school lunchroom <laughs> if you're the new kid at school. Have any of you ever been there? You know what that's like. You know what it's like to have moved to a new place and to have entered a new school and to look around and know no one. You know what it's like in that lunch line then to not know the person in front of you or behind you, to not have any kinds of friendships that you can count on and to be thinking all the while as you walk through that line and you exit the line and you got tray in hand and you look out over the sea of kids and you think, where am I going to sit? Where's my place? Maybe the better question in that scenario is, Who's going to actually let me sit with them? Right? Because you got a group of kids here and a group of kids here and a group of kids there and a group of kids back there. And you all know the, the culture, right? This, this group of kids, they're athletes. And this group of kids, they're the sweater vest kids. Well, maybe not anymore. This group of kids are the goth kids. Again, maybe I'm dating myself there too. This group of kids over here, they're the Xbox kids. And on and on it goes, right? Like everybody's got their tribe. But if you're new... You can feel really left out. Well, the worship gatherings in the Corinthian church weren't much different. You see, there was division going on in the church at Corinth, much like you might see in a middle school lunchroom. One group of people was deciding to go ahead with the meal that they typically shared together when they met for worship, and another group was essentially left out. And in our text this morning, Paul wants to say, look, you guys think that in the context of that meal, you're actually celebrating the Lord's Supper, but you're not. Because you're not showcasing the love of Jesus that welcomes all of his people to the table. And you see, whereas last week, we talked about the fact that the Corinthians were blurring some lines, namely gender lines, that they shouldn't have been blurring. In our text this morning, we're going to talk about the fact that they were actually creating a line of division where there should have been none among the people of God. No racial divisions, no socioeconomic divisions, no divisions of race or class or culture. Why? Because Jesus invites everyone to his table. And we should do the same. You see, where they should have been drawing clear distinctions, they weren't. And where they shouldn't have been drawing any distinctions, they were. Bottom line, just like we talked about last week, they were confused. The Corinthians was a confused church. And it was showing up big time 
in their worship gatherings. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say in our text this morning that they actually would have been better off not meeting for worship because their gatherings were doing more harm than good. Now, how so? Rather than coming together as one body around the Lord's table, they were displaying a disunity that was actually more reflective of the culture around them than it was the gospel that they claimed to believe. So let's dive in this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Now right off the bat, you're going to notice a bit of a difference in terms of how Paul approaches this issue. In chapter 11, verse 2, what did he say? Now, I want to commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But in verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I what? Do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place. Now, this is something interesting about Paul when he's writing these letters, okay? He says in the first place, but you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't say in the second place or in the third place, right? So we're talking about a primary issue here, but Paul doesn't necessarily get to any other matters in this particular section. So he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, now there's that phrase again, we've already seen it twice, this is the third time, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one gets hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, here's that phrase for a fourth time. When you come together... To eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that, here it is a fifth time. When you come together, it will not be for judgment. 
about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Father, I just ask that you'll uh, bless the simple reading and hearing of your word this morning. Holy Spirit, this is got a sword in your hands, more like a scalpel, really, by which you slice open our hearts and expose our sin and apply the healing medicine of the gospel. And I pray that that's what you do through this, your word, this morning. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, Paul starts off by saying, look, I I could commend you about some of those other things we talked about last week. But when it comes to your worship gatherings and how you all conduct yourselves around the Lord's table, I got nothing good to say to you. In fact, your gatherings actually do more harm than good. Now, why does Paul say that? He says it for basically this reason. If there there isn't a seat for everybody at the table, it isn't the Lord's table. If there isn't a seat for everybody at the table, then it isn't the Lord's table. You can simply look at the text and see why these kinds of things had kind of caused some frustration in the Apostle Paul's heart. Verse 18 says that in the first place, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. It's it's the word schism, schism, however you want to say it. The idea of a body being torn apart. There are these social class divisions in the church at Corinth where the rich are basically separating themselves from the poor. Now, you got to have a little bit of cultural context to understand what's going on here, okay? The early church did not meet in buildings like this. Where did they meet? In homes. They met in the homes of typically the wealthy who had enough room to fit everyone. And so we're talking about house churches here to whom Paul is writing. And in those particular house churches, if you and I would have walked into a typical home owned by a wealthy Roman person, we would have walked into an open area called an atrium. And that open area would have had a little pool in it that was used to catch rainwater. Now in that open area, they would have been able to seat maybe 25 to 30 people. Now they wouldn't have always been able to sit. They might have had to stand and just kind of participate from the outside looking in. Because off of the atrium, there would have been several rooms. One of them would have been called the triclinium, all right? And this particular room would have been a dining room that could have sat 12 to 15 people. Now, what was happening in Corinth was the wealthy people who owned the home invited their wealthy friends who were part of the church to eat with them where? In the dining room, to recline around the table and to perhaps enjoy the better food and the better wine than the people of the lower social rank, the the slaves and the employees who would have come to the gathering would have been able to enjoy out in the atrium. And so Paul is saying that when you come together, there are these divisions among you that should not be happening around the Lord's table. 
Not only were their gatherings characterized by social class divisions, their gatherings were also characterized by self-glorification. Look, look at verse 19. For, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. Now, this verse sounds a little strange, and I had to roll it around in my mind several times this week because it almost feels like it's, it's out of place, almost like Paul's commending the church in Corinth for the divisions, almost like they have to be part of the church for some good reason. But then he goes right back to the subject of saying, what you guys are doing is not good. Paul's here not talking about division as a positive. He's talking about the fact that in the church, there was this group of people who were basically dividing along social classes, and they were elevating themselves to this place of self-glory. In other words, they were reflecting the divisions of their culture in such a way that they could clearly perceive themselves and other people would perceive them as the approved ones. As the ones who were on the inside rather than the ones who were on the outside. So there was a lot of self-glory going on in these gatherings. And we talked about that last week as well. And then in verse 21, Paul says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets Drunk. These gatherings were also got characterized by self-indulgence. So the wealthy would have provided most of the food for these meals that also included the Lord's Supper. And you can imagine this group of people enjoying all the best foods and all the best drinks in this dining room, basically living it up and laughing it up together while the slaves who were part of the church and the lower class who were part of the church had to stand outside and wait for the leftovers. They had to stand outside while the food was enjoyed in here and wait for the scraps from the meal. You see, Paul says here that though this church may have thought that in sharing this meal that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper in their meetings, Paul says they actually weren't. Look at what he says in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Why? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. You see, what they were actually doing was making a mockery of the Lord's table and the church that Christ had purchased with his own blood. Paul says in verse 22, what do you, do you not have houses to eat and drink in. Why, why do you bring this kind of division into the church? Why do you make it all about yourselves? You could have eaten yourselves full and drank yourselves drunk. Where? At home. That has no place at the Lord's table. Paul's saying that Christ purchased the unity of the body. Regardless of... Uh, class or economic status or race. And so there's no place for those who are in and those who are out in the body of Christ. And as always, running underneath the surface here is the gospel. That's like the operating system for Paul 
It informs everything he says, all of the instructions that he gives in this letter. So you and I have to remember that Christ did nothing from a desire to glorify himself. His intention was always and in every way to bring glory to his Father and to bestow dignity and honor upon his bride, the church. Also, you'll remember that Christ always acted selflessly and never what? Selfishly. So running underneath the surface of these instructions is the gospel that Paul himself had received and the gospel that Paul is now preaching. And that's what these instructions come out of. You see, the divisions prevalent in the house churches of Corinth were really really a a reflection of the divisions that just simply existed in Roman culture. That's all they were. And if I'm being honest this morning, I think the wealthy in the church probably didn't think much about it because that's just what you did. You didn't sit at the table and eat a meal with your slaves, much less anyone else of a lower social rank than yourself. But here's the thing. Into that culture enters the gospel. Into that culture enters the gospel with its assumption exploding power. You see, where the world creates dividing lines, Christ erases them. Where the world creates dividing lines, Christ erases them. And look, we have to admit that because we are sinners just like the Corinthians, we carry our own assumptions about who does and who does not belong at the table with us. We all have people that we would be more comfortable in community with than others. You know the kind, the kind you and I only get close to, the the kind that dress like us and think like us and eat like us and enjoy the same kinds of things that we enjoy. But here's what Paul's saying in the context of this passage. The Lord Jesus has so much more for us than that. The Lord Jesus is calling us to be a unique community. I I like the word, and it's not original with me, but the Lord is calling us to an uncommon kind of community. The kind of community where every person who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, has a seat at the table. Regardless of race, income, education, occupation, social status, connections, wealth, ability to contribute, or background. You see, Paul Paul is saying essentially is this, if the Lord Jesus has invited someone to the table, who are you and I to say they can't sit beside us? What the Lord Jesus wants us to be is a a people of grace. You know, anybody can love someone who loves them back, right? Jesus even talked about that. 
Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 46. For, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? For even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Paul's really talking here about reflecting the heart of our Father. By welcoming people who aren't like us. Who have different backgrounds than we have. Who might not like the things we like. Who might not look the same way that we look. Who might not have the same skin color that we have. Now here's the deal. Every single person in this room wants to sit at that kind of table. I promise you, you do. Because you know what it's like to walk out of the lunchroom in middle school and not know where to sit. You want a place. You want to belong You want to have a tribe and a community. The Lord's table is is the kind of table where nobody's pretending to have it all together because we know we don't. There isn't a better class of kingdom citizen and a lower class of kingdom citizen. There isn't a person around the table who's bought their way to that place. Right? All the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so we all come by grace and grace alone. And everybody wants to sit at that kind of table. Because if you're anything like me, you can't sit at the table with the rich people. Right? I can't afford that. You probably can't either. It's also the kind of table where where nobody is jockeying for position. Because we all recognize that Jesus is the supreme servant and we simply want to follow his lead. Now that means when we pull up a chair around the Lord's table, if we're doing it like Jesus and in response to his grace, we're more interested in making sure the people around us are taken care of than we are in making sure that our plates are full. You know, it's the kind of table where those who come with less aren't humiliated because they have less, but find that those who have more are humble and are willing to share. Because the Lord doesn't just bless us for those blessings to terminate on us. We're to be conduits, right? We're to be conduits of the blessings the Lord has given us, that the whole body might be built up. Really, this is the kind of table where the love of Jesus is in the air. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about food memories. All of us have food memories, right? Like all of us can conjure up in our minds the smells, the aromas of those certain meals and those certain dining experiences that we connect with with sweet memories. When we come together and worship, we, we we want the smell of Jesus to be in the air. We want a sweet aroma to just, just, just wash out of those doors as people come in. We want it to fill this place. We want it to spill out into the streets where division, distrust, and disunity are everywhere. 
And it should not be so in the church. In fact, it's at the Lord's table where Jesus teaches us to love like him. It's at the Lord's table where you and I learn to love one another just as Jesus loves us. That's that's the point Paul makes in verses 23 to 26. This is why he rehearses the instructions he received directly from the Lord about this meal. Verse 23, for or because, or I'm about to give you a reason why the way that you're celebrating the meal is completely out of bounds. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is what? For you. Not for me, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Whenever we come to the Lord's table, we're fundamentally reminded of the love of Jesus. We're reminded of the fact that Jesus didn't hold anything back. But he allowed his body to be broken so that you and I could be made whole. You see, when we come to the table, we're reminded of how much he gave in service to us. And we're not just meant to be reminded of his love for us. Jesus is there at the table saying to us, do you see what I've done for you? Do you see what I've done for you? Now you... Go and do likewise for one another. Now, I'm not just pulling that out of the air. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus, when they celebrated this supper, got up from the table, wrapped himself in a towel, washed all of their feet, and said, do you see what I've done for you? Now, you go and do it. You go and do likewise for one another. Let's keep going. In verse 25, Paul writes, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The the idea of covenant or promise or commitment. You see, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper among his disciples, He was saying, this is not only a way for you to remember my love, this is a way for you to remember my promise to you. Because not only am I going to die for you, but because you've placed your faith in me, I'm committed to you for time and eternity. This is a covenant made in my shed blood that can never be broken. And isn't that what the book of Hebrews says? Jesus had to die only what? once in order to pay for the sins of his people so that now we are forever forgiven and forever free and forever in union with Christ and in relationship with our heavenly father and again Jesus is saying through this meal we're not only talking about my commitment to you we're talking about your commitment to me and your commitment to who one another one another You see, the church isn't some random collection of individuals. We are a what? Family. 
We are a family. And if family is anything, family is committed to one another, or at least family should be, should be committed to one another. And so Paul is drawing the Corinthians' attention back to this meal and back to its purpose, back to what it's designed to communicate in the local church. When we eat it, Paul goes on to say that we're proclaiming the death of Jesus in our midst until the day that he returns. Now, that doesn't mean that we're simply proclaiming the facts of the crucifixion. We're proclaiming the significance of it too. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're being reminded not only that Jesus died, but why. Why he died. Namely, to reconcile us to the Father and to reconcile us, as Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, to one another. In other words, Jesus intends this meal to form us and to shape us into people who look like him and love like him. Now I want you to notice something. Turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. You can keep your finger at 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to hop back over there real quick. I just want you to see one verse. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. This is Mark's account of Jesus' Jesus's celebration of the final Passover with his disciples. And I want you to notice four words in verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them. Now this is the formula in Mark's gospel. It's the formula in Luke's gospel and in Matthew's gospel. Whenever you read of their accounts of the Lord's Supper, you read of Jesus doing these four things. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What does Paul say? Paul says... That on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he blessed it or gave thanks for it, he broke it, and then he says, this is my body which is for you. And so he gave himself as a representation through the bread to his disciples. Jesus took, he broke, he he, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. Now, I want you to watch this, okay? Because this is what Paul wants to communicate to the Corinthian church. Just like Jesus took the bread at the meal, as the body of Christ, so Jesus has taken you and me. He's taken us to himself through his death and his resurrection. And just like Jesus gave thanks for the bread or blessed the bread, guess what? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that in Christ, you and I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. 
So Jesus has taken us. Jesus has now blessed us. And through Jesus' broken body, our own brokenness is being healed. We're being put back together. The Holy Spirit through the gospel is addressing our human frailty. He's addressing our dismal failures as sinners. And he's addressing the fact that you and I live in a fallen world that is sometimes crushingly painful to navigate. And here's the deal. As Jesus heals us, Jesus also wants to give us. So he's taken us, he's blessed us. Through his brokenness, we are being put back together. And now Jesus wants to give us. He wants to give us to one another in the church that we might build up and bless one another. But he also wants to give us to a wider world that desperately needs his mercy. At the Lord's table, in other words, Jesus is teaching us to embrace his self-giving love. And look, if you want to know what the fundamental problem in the church at Corinth was when it came to their worship gatherings, it was a lack of what? Love. It was a lack of love. All this self-glorification and self-indulgence, all of this division just to make those feel better who thought that they were somehow better than their fellow brothers and sisters. All the while, the Corinthian church, man, they, 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 they had it all together when it came to spiritual knowledge and when it came to all the spiritual gifts. The Lord had tremendously blessed them. But do you know what Paul says about all of that <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Listen to this. And look, <clears throat> I'm really excited to get to 1 Corinthians 13 because that chapter is like the wedding chapter, but when you see it in the context of the book, I can promise you it'll change everything. Paul, Paul says, look, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm what? Nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain what? Nothing. Nothing. And so Jesus says, into this division that existed in Corinth, when you come to my table, you're to learn from me not what it looks like to get, but what it looks like to give. And to love. And to sacrifice your own wants and desires and your, your own desire for approval at the foot of the cross. And y'all, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13 that this kind of love, it's, it's not self-interested. 
It's not self-glorifying and it's not self-indulgent. That's why Paul goes on to say, whenever you and I do come to the table, we must examine ourselves. Because we're very prone to self-glorification and self-indulgence and self-interest. Look at verse 27. Again, now, there's another therefore here. So Paul is following a train of thought. He's following an argument. And we need to see these verses in the context of the whole passage, okay? Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread, and so drink of the cup. Now, it's pretty clear right here that Paul takes the observance of the Lord's Supper very, very seriously. But why? What does it mean? And again, we always have to read the Bible in context. What does it mean to drink the cup and to eat the bread in an unworthy manner? Based on the fact that Paul takes it so seriously, or we should say the Holy Spirit takes it so seriously, what then does it mean to examine ourselves before we eat and before we drink? Now let me say what this doesn't mean, okay? This isn't a meal when you and I celebrate it for those who think themselves worthy to come to the table. Right, I think sometimes when we prepare to receive the bread and the cup, we, we kind of hunker down and we get before the Lord and, 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 and we want the Lord to basically tell us, well, you're worthy. You're good to come. Ain't none of us in this room ever going to be worthy enough to come to the table. We don't come based on our worth. You and I come based on God's grace, his love, his kindness, and his compassion. So I don't want you to think about self-examination as this kind of hunkering down, searching your heart, trying to determine whether or not you're worthy to eat and drink. Let's just get that out of the way. You aren't, you won't ever be, come anyway. All right? That's the point. That's the point. Come anyway. Come and be reminded of Christ's love for you. Come and be reminded of his grace toward you. Come and be reminded that your sin is not stronger than your Savior. Come. So what then does Paul mean? What does it mean to drink and eat in an unworthy manner? And then what does it mean to examine ourselves? Listen, here's the warning. Anyone who eats without discerning the body drinks judgment on himself. That's what Paul says. Look, verse 29, and I think it's really important that he says it this way. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, if you're reading like I typically do, you're like, huh. Now, why does Paul mention only the body there? And not the what? The blood. He's already said, don't drink, don't eat or drink in an unworthy manner. So why does he say only the body here? 
Because it's essentially a play on words. The body of Christ is not only represented in the bread on the table, the body of Christ is represented where else? Exactly. The the body of Christ is the church. Now, think about what was going on in Corinth at the time. All of this division around the dinner table essentially meant that the people who were withholding fellowship from those who weren't like them weren't rightly discerning the body. Because there aren't divisions like that in the body. There's no divisions of race, no divisions of social status, no divisions of class or education or occupation or financial worth. So to rightly discern the body of Christ is to recognize that if Jesus has invited somebody to the table, I'm not to refuse them fellowship or to refuse them a place at the table. That makes sense? So then you ask, well, what does it mean? What does it mean then to examine myself when I come to the table in the context of this passage? It means this. There's not only a vertical dimension to the Lord's table. There's a horizontal dimension too. In other words, when you and I receive the bread and the cup, it's not only about this, it's also about this. Remember way back a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, Paul said these words. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. In other words, listen. If the gospel is having an impact on our hearts, it's not only going to show up in our relationship with God, it's actually going to show up in our relationships with one another. After all, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with everything you got, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then, of course, there's verse 30. Look at verse 30. Paul says, in effect, that there were some in the church who weren't rightly discerning the body and were drinking judgment on themselves. And how did that play out? That's why many of you are weak and ill. And some of you have even died. Now, I feel like I got a fresh insight into that verse this week, okay? I want you to listen to this. I think it's very possible that what Paul is saying right here is that things had gotten so bad in the Corinthian church that there were actually poor members who were sick, perhaps starving, and some had even died as a direct result of the neglect of those in the church who could have alleviated the problem. Things had gotten so bad that those who had were not helping those who did not have. And as a result, those who did not have were getting sick and were dying. Whew. That's heavy stuff. And Paul calls that judgment. Judgment on that church because guess what? It showcased the fact 
that all the blessings that God intended to use to bless up and build that body, a small group of people were hoarding for themselves. And rather than bringing life, that hoarding of blessings did what? Brought death. It brought death. And so what does Paul say? What does Paul say? Verse 32, but, or verse 31, but if we judged ourselves, if we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged. In other words, God would not deliver this upon our church if we rightly reckoned whether or not our hearts are in the right place concerning the people in the body that God has placed around us. Now that's, again, another play on words because Earlier in the passage, Paul talked about those people who basically sought approval. Here he says, you need to check your hearts and determine whether or not you should be approved. Paul goes on to say, when we're judged by the Lord, it's the Lord's discipline, right? To to take us and set us back on the right path. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, here's the deal, friends. And I believe this is what Paul is saying here. When one part of the body hurts, the whole body should what? Hurt. When one part of the body hurts, the whole body should hurt. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 12 when he says, As a body we should rejoice with those who rejoice and what? Weep with those who weep. In the case of the Corinthians, one part of the body may have been hurting, but the rest of the body was essentially carrying on with business as usual. And Paul says, it's not okay. In fact, that reflects the judgment of the Lord upon your congregation. And so Paul says, judge yourselves when you prepare to receive the supper. Now look, this means we need to ask ourselves some pretty pointed questions. Is there a need within this body that the Lord has laid on your heart to meet that you've refused to meet or simply neglected? Is there an area of brokenness that the Lord is calling you to step into with the healing message of the gospel, with with hands and feet of Jesus, and you've simply neglected to do so? Maybe you have something that the Lord wants you to give in service to someone else in this body that they might be built up and strengthened. And the implication of this passage is that sometimes we withhold those things. Let's make it a little bit more personal. Is there someone you would rather not sit beside at the Lord's table? all know, just like I do, that it's easier to have a meal with some people than it is others. Right? 
Especially when those other people are family and it's like the awkward Thanksgiving dinner or the awkward Christmas dinner. And you're like, I'm not going this year, but I have to go. I'm not bringing up that subject, but inevitably somebody else does. There are all people, specifically and generally, that we don't want to sit with around the Lord's table. There might be some person right now that comes to mind, and you're like, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm going to put my Bible on that seat. And if I had two Bibles, I'd put one here and one here. You know how Jesus says we're to handle things like that? Listen to Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift therefore before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Let me ask you a pointed question. Have you ever abstained from taking the elements of the Lord's Supper because you knew that there was someone within the family of God that you just weren't right with. It's essentially what Jesus is saying. Because the fact that you and I have unity with Jesus ought to reflect that we have unity with the members of his body. And if we know there's someone who has something against us, we should not partake and we should instead do what? Go to that person and try to work it out. Go to that person and try to reestablish the unity. Because what should the table of the Lord look like? Look at what Paul says in conclusion. Verse 33. So then, my brothers... When you come together, wait for one another. You could translate those words this way. Receive one another. Receive one another. In other words, when we come to the Lord's table, you and I are to welcome one another just as the Lord Jesus has welcomed us. We're to receive one another with the same kind of self-giving love that characterizes Christ. And how has he received us? He's received us unconditionally. So Paul says, let's do the same thing with one another. Listen to this. All of us, all of us have deserved worse and gained infinitely more through the mercy and grace of Christ. So no one has any reason to boast. Right? Yes, none of us have any ground for acting high and mighty. We're commanded to be merciful and full of grace towards sinners, which is essentially all of us, making forgiveness and unity our priority. Unity is so important to the Lord Jesus because he died for that. He died to reconcile us to God and to one another. So we're to go out of our way to pursue reconciliation. 
We're to go out of our way to bring the comfort of the gospel to a repentant brother or sister. We're to go out of our way to grieve our own sin and to confess our sin to one another rather than bringing up other people's sin to them. And then we're to joyfully worship Jesus together in grateful thanksgiving for everything he's freely offered us. Not only are we to receive one another unconditionally, we're also to receive one another generously. Romans 15, 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Because we all need Jesus, and because you and I have everything we need in Jesus, We are free to be open-handed and generous with our time, our energy, our gifts, and our resources. Look, even when you and I feel weak and depleted and ill-equipped, we can trust that the Spirit will bear fruit in us as we welcome one another with a generosity of spirit. Do you know what was about to happen to Jesus when he first celebrated this meal with his disciples, or when he got up from the table to wash their feet. It wasn't like he was about to be crowned Messiah of Israel. He was about to die. And yet, in the midst of those circumstances, he was thinking not of himself, but the glory of his Father and the good of his disciples. And as you and I do that, as you and I ask the Holy Spirit to produce that kind of selflessness in us. You and I push back the divisions that separate us from one another. We push back the darkness that's in our hearts, the the darkness that simply desires to exalt ourselves over others rather than come under them to lift them up. We push back the temptation to get all that we can And to indulge ourselves rather than thinking of others first. And as we do all of that around the table and in our gatherings and in our everyday lives with one another, you know what we do? We bring glory to Christ. We bring glory to him. We put him on display in our words and in our way of life. So here's how I want to close this morning. I just want to ask you to kind of bow your heads and Let's reflect together on a few things, okay? Maybe your heart is resistant this morning to receiving a certain person at the table of the Lord. Maybe maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing a picture of that person to your mind. And maybe you realize for the first time that If we all sat together around a table to receive the bread and the cup, you would not want to sit beside that person. I want to encourage you this morning to take that resistance to the Lord. I don't want to encourage you this morning to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and try to overcome that resistance on your own. I want you to cry out to the Lord and I want you to say, Lord, help me love so and so. Help me forgive so-and-so. Maybe 
Maybe your heart is resistant to opening yourself up to the kind of messy community that is the church. Maybe you've got church hurt in your background. Maybe you know what it's like to be on the outside looking in. Maybe you felt that way in the context of the church, and that's why you're having a real hard time deciding whether or not you want to develop some real friendships with people in this church. I want you to take that resistance to the Lord too. Because God intends for you not only to give love, but to receive it in the context of his body. Maybe you're here this morning and you had no clue before today that the Lord Jesus stands ready to welcome you into his arms and into the Father's family and to give you a seat at his table. Maybe no one's ever shared the gospel with you like that. Maybe no one has ever said to you, Jesus purchased a seat for you at the Father's table. All you got to do is come to him by faith and he'll seat you with him and with his people forever. You know, maybe you feel like you never belonged anywhere. Maybe the illustration about the middle school lunchroom hit home because that's how you felt like your entire life. And you know what you've done? You've lived your whole life like a chameleon, just trying to fit in. And today, this morning, you're tired of wearing all the masks. I want to encourage you to put the masks in the trash and come to Christ. You don't got to hide with him. You don't got to put on your Sunday best. You don't got to get dressed up to come to his dinner table. All you got to do is put aside the masks, lay aside the sin, and come when he calls you. Maybe you're here this morning and and you're tired of putting other people down just so you can feel better about yourself. Maybe you realize today that that's done nothing but leave you empty inside. Maybe for the first time you realize you're just not enough. No matter how many other people you try to put down so you can lift yourself up, you are not enough. But you know what Jesus is? Leave the weight of trying to make a name for yourself aside and say, Jesus, I don't want to live for me anymore. I want you. Maybe that's what you've been doing. Maybe you're living for yourself and and you realize today that a life of self-indulgence is a dead-end road. That it'll only end in the judgment of God. Maybe you're ready to hand it all over to Christ this morning. Here's what I want you to know. If you do that, he'll never let you down. He'll never leave you out in the cold. He'll never tell you to get up and leave his dinner table because you messed up. He'll never say, no dinner for you, go to your room. He'll never say, you don't belong here. You aren't one of the cool kids. His welcome is a forever welcome. 
And when he pulls back the chair and he invites you to sit, that'll always be your seat. That's the precious gift of the gospel. As the worship team comes this morning to lead us, and you reflect on these things, I want to invite you not simply to hear the word, but to be a doer of the word. To respond as the Holy Spirit leads you. There's no guarantee the Holy Spirit is working in the exact same way in every heart in this room. But as we believe the promise that the Word of God will never return void, it's guaranteed that the Holy Spirit's working here. I pray that you'll listen to Him today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray that as we receive it today, Lord, that we would indeed respond to it. As your Holy Spirit moves in our midst, I pray that every single person in this room would simply be asking, what would you have me do, Lord? What would you have me do? And I pray that we would respond in faith and respond in obedience. We ask these things in Christ's name. If you'd like to pray, you're welcome to continue to sit where you are and to do that. You're welcome to come right down here to the front and pray. You're welcome to stand and sing. However the Holy Spirit's leading you to respond, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Let's sing.